Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. My name is Mike Petriello. I'm a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Wednesday, October 25th, and we have a World Series. Arizona Diamondbacks, Texas Rangers. It's going to start on Friday night in Arlington. I think we can all admit it's not the World Series we expected, but that doesn't mean it's not super interesting. I actually think it's extremely interesting for a number of reasons. Clearly, that's the bulk of what Matt and I will be talking about. But first, quickly, we'll get to what happened in the NLCS and ALCS. And Matt, disagree with me if you want. The single most surprising thing to me about either league championship series was not Kevin Ginkle, was not any particular player. It was that both went seven games. Because I vividly remember talking to you like a week ago and saying, these series are going to wrap up on Friday. We're going to have six days to kill before the World Series and everyone's going to lose their mind. And instead, we got a pair of seven-game series, which I feel like we earned because, let's be honest, the first couple of rounds of the postseason didn't have a lot of tension necessarily. And then we got like back-to-back seven-gamers. That that was cool. I'm very thankful for this. Yeah. I predicted D-backs in seven, which, yay me. Um, second, I'll contradict myself and say last week when the Phillies were up 2 nothing, I was like, okay, this series is done. I was definitely part of the, like, Phillies are just better. I know, like, weird stuff happens in baseball, but they still have two home games. They've been basically unbeatable. They'll probably win a game, at least one game in Arizona. Like, they're going to win this series. It's probably – I didn't think it was going to go back to Philly, but I was my thought was if it goes back to Philly, the Phillies will win. So, like, the fact of the matter is the fact that we got seven games in the NLCS, especially after how the first two games went, is definitely a shocker. Not to mention the fact that D-backs came back and won. The ALCS, I think, you know – I mean, the Rangers and Astros both finished with the exact same record this year. They both had 90 wins. The Astros had home field and won the division simply because they'd won the season series. So those were two very evenly matched teams. I know the Rangers were a wild card team, but like for all intents and purposes, they were you know equal. And some might argue had a better roster come October than the Rangers did. Than, we, the, than the Astros did. Yeah, no, I I think that's right. I mean. Let me ask you this, if we go back to the National League for a second. I have been surprised to find that Philadelphia fans seem to be mostly angry at their manager, Rob Thompson. And I think that's natural. Like anytime any team loses a postseason series, you start with the manager. But like I feel like any mistakes he made were sort of around the edges. I know people wanted him to change up the lineup because no one was hitting, but like, what are you gonna do? Start Jake Cave? I mean, at a certain point, either Nick Castiano hits or he doesn't, right? Johan Rojas, Rojas is a good defensive outfielder, but overmatched. Like, it, how did they get here? They got here because their big boys hit. And if that doesn't happen, there's only so much you can do. Could you quibble about how long he left in a starter here and there? Fine. Really, the only thing I could argue with is he trusted Craig Kimbrell too much in, in big situations. Like, that's the main thing. But again, he's Craig Kimbrell. <laughs> Certain point, the player's got to perform. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if I could go back to it, I think it was game three where they basically did bullpen game and they brought in, or maybe it was game four, I can't remember which one, and they brought in Jeff Hoffman in the third inning. And that one was what was weird to me because it basically was like you were guaranteeing, you were basically going your, your best high leverage guys in like the third or fourth inning and you were really counting on your bullpen when he had Taiwan Walker and Michael Lorenzen who were sort of redundant to begin with as just sort of like decent righty length guys but like to have both of them on your roster and not use them in that situation it basically set up Kimbrel to sort of have to be in that big moment and that was one of the two games that Kimbrel was essentially responsible for them losing but to your first point in game six and seven at home 
the combination of Bryce Harper, Kyle Schwarber, Nick Castellanos, and Trey Turner went, and I promise you this is real, one for 28. No. (laughs) Have you ever seen um, a momentum narrative die as quickly as what happened to the Phillies? (laughs) Like that was their whole thing. We're team vibes. And they go back home. You know how I knew it was over? It was last night in game seven where – uh, I don't remember the score exactly, but it was a run, one-run game, I'm pretty sure. Schwarber's on second, and Trey Turner tries to bunt him over to third. And that, to me, was like, if you're bunting for a hit, like, okay. But Kyle Schwarber is, if not the slowest man in baseball, he's pretty close to it. And you're bunting him over to third base, you're, you're Trey Turner. Like, swing away against the left-handed pitcher. That that shocked me. Not to mention the fact that, like, a good chance you bunt, even if the bunt is successful and it's only a sacrifice or a fake sacrifice, it's man on third, one out, Bryce Harper. They can just walk Harper. Like you're basically, you're, you're like, so, um, yeah, that was weird. That was definitely showing Turner not feeling great about his swings in that moment. I will say Bryce Harper, I, I was in reading some of, our, some of the postgame coverage. He had a great quote about his flyout against uh, Kevin Ginkle in the seventh inning. Um, if the set the scene, it was first and second, um, two outs, bottom of the seventh, D-backs are up four to two. Bryce Harper up. I think Turner just has just hit a flat out lazy fly ball, and Bryce Harper hit one, and it was a towering fly ball. It was, I mean, it was a it was a lazy fly ball, and but it was 109 miles an hour off the bat. I actually didn't realize it was hit that hard. 44 degree launch angle. And Bryce Harper's quote was, "I mean, this is what he said. He said, I mean, 109 at 44. He said referring to the launch angle. So he beat my barrel by a tenth of a second, probably." I just love that he knows that, that he knows like the math, basically like if I had been a tenth of a second quicker, I get it on the, the meaty part of the barrel and that goes over the fence. It's like the, the, the mindset of the modern player and how they've changed and how they think about their bat paths and their bat speed and how they can make contact and how they can do damage is really, the, that evolution has been really interesting to see. Yeah, not to totally tangent us here, but it sounds like um, recent former player Craig Breslow is about to take over the Red Sox. This is a, the guy who played in the StatCast era in 2015 and I think to what you just said, guys are definitely starting to learn that. And I think you're going to see more of that kind of move in the near future because they're more educated on that. Before we move into our World Series preview, uh, we're going to kind of go position by position. I want to at least ask you about narratives. Are you are you disappointed with the World Series we got? Like it's not, you know, Yankees Cubs like everybody wants it to be. I think it's unfair. Well, two things can be true, right? One thing that is true is that these two teams have combined for the fewest wins ever by World Series participants. I don't think you have to hide from that. Anthony Kastrovitz wrote a piece uh, just recently that said the Diamondbacks are maybe the least likely World Series participant ever. At the same time, the Diamondbacks did go through the Brewers and the Dodgers and the Phillies. Like they didn't get here by accident. They played good quality baseball, and I think they're going to be they're they're the kind of team I think that the sport should want to promote in that they're young and fast and exciting and interesting. Like that's half the point of the rule changes, right? And they live up to that. And I think, and this is something that Kastrovitz touched on on the piece, and like part of what makes them unlikely in his in his argument was basically that like it took a certain set of rule changes to sort of that they were really well built to capitalize on, and having this like young athletic roster. I think they were second in the league in stolen bases, um, very good defensive team, and then in the postseason they actually didn't steal that much at all in the LCS until game six and seven when they were eight for eight in stolen bases the last two games with the winning run. In Game Seven, scoring, uh, was Corbin Carroll scoring after he had just stolen a base? So, like, it actually made a huge, huge difference. I mean, I think what I would say is that 
this kind of thing, people are focused on the expanded playoffs, which I understand, but like this isn't new, right? We've had like weird, funky teams make it to the, I say funky, like in terms of just a regular season record, make it to the World Series all the time in the wild card era. I mean, the 2014, the Giants and Royals were both wild card teams. We've seen the 2006 Cardinals with like 83 wins or 84 wins win the World Series. Like this isn't, it feels maybe more pronounced because of the playoff format, but like this new, I mean, the, the 73 Mets had 82 wins, right? Like, and that was even the previous, like, divisional era playoff format. So, and to your point, like, the Diamondbacks in particular, at this point, they don't feel so fluky. Yeah, on, on the last day of the season, they felt like they would have been fluky, but after sweeping the Brewers, sweeping the Dodgers, and then winning game six and seven in Philadelphia, the like, the best home field advantage we maybe have ever seen in recent, in recent history, like, they don't feel so fluky in this moment, I have to say. No, I think what gets to people is that it's the second year of expanded playoffs and they are the sixth seed, right? So they would not have been in the playoffs under the previous format. They also, they were the benefit of some good fortune in the sense that right before the Brewers series started, Brandon Woodruff got hurt and couldn't go. And when the Dodgers came in, they had no starting pitching. And that's not to take anything away from them. It's just that that is the sort of good fortune you need to get this far. I think it's going to be exciting. So we'll take a break and we'll come back and we'll set up the 2023 World Series. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petrillo and Matt Myers. It's our World Series preview show, the Diamondbacks and the Rangers. It should be a fun one that starts on Friday night in Arlington. Uh, for the site, it's not even up yet, but I read it this morning. We did a position-by-position breakdown of both of the teams, and so I think that's what we're going to do. That's how we're going to preview the World Series is look at each position. And I got to say, as I went through this, I was sort of surprised by how close it is in a lot of spots. You know, there's not really like an obvious edge. I feel like... Most people will say the Rangers are going to be the better team because they won more games in the regular season. But I'm not so sure. And uh, when we get to predictions, I think maybe you'll be surprised uh, at the end. So now let's go through some of the positions here. I, I started with catcher. And I got to say, catcher is a, a real difficult one because one of the themes of the postseason was almost every team felt like had really strong catchers, right? Like Will Smith and JT Romito and Adley Rutschman, you know, even on the teams that didn't really go anywhere. And here you've got young superstar Gabriel Moreno, who was uh, acquired from Toronto last winter, and Jonah Heim, who I don't think enough people realize is on his fourth organization, like a real late bloomer, acquired for, wait for it, Elvis Andrus, who had been there forever, who they like, desperately wanted to move on from, and they got Chris with a K Davis and Jonah Heim. I went slight advantage to the Diamondbacks simply because Moreno got off to a slow start hitting and then crushed for the second half and into the postseason where Heim kind of was the opposite. And it, to be fair, he hurt his wrist, but you know, even so, production is production. Uh, they're both good defenders in different ways. Heim's a better framer. Moreno's a better thrower. But it's this one's close for me. Mike, listeners of this podcast obviously know who Jonah Heim is because he was one of my guys <laughs> earlier this season. So uh, if you know, you know, right? Podcast listeners know. Um, I think Moreno is a perfect example um, of why it is often so hard to judge beyond the randomness of base of short series in baseball, judge teams solely on their record when looking at postseason series. Because like the makeup of teams change over the course of a year in terms of players coming on and off the roster. And also, especially when it comes to young players, 
they actually improve. Like if you talked about the D-backs in June, you'd be like, oh, yeah, Moreno, he's like an interesting young catcher, hasn't really put it together yet. You look at them now, three rounds into the postseason, it's like this guy's a young star and like an, imp- an impact player. And so I'm with you. I think that, you know, Moreno just – he's – He's hit well. He's made some great throws. He's great at you know blocking balls in the dirt. So I I, I give him a slight edge here, and that's not a knock on him. I think Moreno is like legitimately. You know, we're talking about Diamondbacks. They have like a couple of like true young stars, as do the Rangers, as we'll get to. Um, but I, I'm you know Moreno has been maybe my favorite player to watch in this postseason. Uh, yes, you do not speak for the nation of Canada. I'm sure. Uh, at first base, Christian Walker. And uh, Nathaniel Lowe. So I, I initially went into this thinking, and Walker just has not done anything in the postseason. Like he did early on and just had a kind of brutal run. And then I looked it up. Uh, Walker in the playoffs is 699 OPS, which is not very good. But Nathaniel Lowe has a 698 OPS with a strikeout rate of nearly 40%. It's not like there haven't been moments in there, but he has not done anything better than Walker has. Uh, Walker is the best defensive first baseman in the league by a lot. And while Lowe actually made really nice steps forward, he went from being awful last year to a Gold Glove finalist this year. Walker's the better defensive first baseman. There's no difference in postseason production. And when you look at the regular season, uh, Walker had like a 50-point edge in OPS. So while I am disappointed that Christian Walker, long one of my favorites, has not actually done that much, I, I still got to take him over, I think, low here by a little bit. Walker is kind of my pick to click in the World Series. I think he's just, you know, this is there's not a lot of science behind this other than like he feels like he's due, but he feels like he's due. And you look at the, you know, look at the D-backs. I mean, he was especially bad in the LCS. He had a full, 446 OPS in the LCS. He was two for 22. Um, but, you know, you make up for that when you're the D-backs by having Alec Thomas play out of his mind for a week. And it sort of balances like, oh, one of our stars is t- has been playing terrible, but one of our, you know, worst hitters is suddenly having the series of his life. So Walker's defense is long, you know, it's kind of actually, you know, I don't want to say underrated because I just think everything about his game is underrated. Uh, I would probably give him the edge partially just because I expect him to kind of put it together. He started to... He actually hit some balls, like deep balls to the warning track. Felt like he was maybe starting to break out of it. Never really had his moment in the LCS, but um, I expect big things from him in the World Series. So at second base, and I didn't really mean to go three Diamondbacks in a row, but it just sort of how it worked out. That's right. I'm not picking Marcus Simeon, who I think long has been one of the underrated superstars. And I always try to point out when I'm doing these kind of things, I'm not just looking at who's been good in the postseason so far because it's such a small sample and it can be kind of random. Marcus Simeon's been pretty rough in the postseason so far. He's got a 192 average and a 231 slugging percentage. And like he's a very good player. He could absolutely just crush it in the World Series. And I wouldn't be the least bit surprised. Except on one hand, Cattell Marte uh, has been fantastic in the postseason. I believe he was MVP of the NLCS. 16 game postseason hitting streak. And what surprised me a little bit is uh, Marte actually outhit Simeon in the regular season. Not if you're just looking at RBIs, fine. Uh, but in terms of OPS plus, he was six points better than Simeon, which is not what I expected. I will give you that Simeon's a better defender than Marte. But considering that Marte's as good a hitter or better and has definitely shown it in October, uh, three for three on Diamondbacks here. Marte is one of my favorite players in the league. Um, and he's obviously was great in the LCS. He was an LCS MVP. I mean, Similar to what I was saying about Walker, you kind of feel like something's coming for Simeon at some point. Um, in terms of like their overall production, they're kind of similar players, but they get to it in different ways. Simeon's actually a guy who doesn't really hit the ball that hard, and like whereas Marte really kind of punishes the ball. Um, so in some ways, like they kind of have this like 
they both have this sort of power speed profile, but they aren't as similar as they might seem on the surface. This one's kind of a wash for me just based on the track records, but um, both really you know, obviously fantastic, well-rounded players. Uh, I think at shortstop, so this is going to be my biggest uh, my biggest mismatch here, right? I like, listen, all due respect to all-star shortstop, which I totally forgot about, all-star shortstop, Geraldo Perdomo. Uh, he, he had eight hits against the Phillies. It's not like he didn't do anything. I don't want to disrespect him here. He's not Corey Seager. Right? Corey Seager uh, is going to finish second in the MVP, and the only reason he's not going to win it is because Shohei Otani exists. And then in October, here is his line, and this is true, 333, 483 on base, and a slug of over 1,100. So his, uh, his OPS is like 1,500 or whatever. He's played better defense than I expected. Again, respect to Perdomo, but there's only one Corey Seager, and Arizona doesn't have him. Yeah, and I mean, it's... You never know. It's not just the the, the sort of the, t- the track record and talent gap. It's also kind of like Corey Seager has shown time and again that he performs in the postseason. He's someone that like you feel pretty good about when he comes up. That home run he hit in the first inning in Game Seven against the against the um, against the Astros was a it was a real statement. And he's had a lot of those in his postseason career, going back you know the twenty twenty World Series where he kind of carried the the Dodgers to the World Series in Globe Life Field. So. He's the single best player in this series, and that's a nice advantage for the uh, Rangers to have. So at third base, I, I was very, very surprised by this fact I found. I'm not someone who tries to let postseason performance like meaningfully change my opinion of a player, and it's not unrelated to growing up a Dodger fan and living through a lot of Clayton Kershaw October starts over the years. Did you know that Evan Longoria has been one of the weakest postseason hitters pretty much of all time, given how much he's played? He has been in 47 career postseason games dating back to 2008, and his line is 172, 238, 391. Even this year, he's only hitting 135, and the other third baseman, Emmanuel Rivera, has been even worse. Like I did not realize what a problem third base has been for Arizona. It's a huge problem. So it's like, I don't need a lot from Josh Young to be better than that, and Josh Young's been very good. Three postseason homers, 13 hits. This this was an easy one for me. There's some sort of like maybe like circle of life thing going on here. Like Josh Young, like the rookie third baseman, thinking back to the 2008 World uh, World Series when Evan Longoria was the rookie third baseman for the Rays with his whole career ahead of him. Yeah, I mean, Longoria is a nice story. You know, he cheated on that Nola fastball in Game Six and and crushed that double in the gap. I think that I feel like that's the only time he's really hit the ball hard all postseason that I've seen. It's hard to you know scout from from watching on TV, but he definitely looks. From what you can see, the bat looks slow. It doesn't really feel like he's a threat to do much at the plate. I mean, they don't really have a better alternative, right? Like Rivera doesn't bring much to the table as a hitter either. So, in that scenario, you're going to go with Longoria and kind of like the the veteran the veteran vibes. But um, yeah, that's another big advantage for the bigger bigger big advantage for the Rangers. Yeah, as we move to the outfield, this is where it gets pretty fun, right? Left field, Evan Carter. Evan Carter has been an unbelievable superstar both sides of the ball. Uh, in the postseason, he's slugged 538. He's played great defense. Now, they have been platooning him with Robbie Grossman against lefties, but the D-backs don't have lefty starters. Uh, they did use Joe Mantiply as an opener in the NLCS, so maybe that'll happen again. But I would imagine that Evan Carter is going to start... Uh, it's interesting, right? Against the Astros, Grossman would start sometimes, and then Carter comes in, you know, for defensive platoon. I'm going to be very interested to see if they 
hit Grossman for Carter, like late in a game, once you get into Saul Frank and Mantiply after a righty starter. Like that's of all the uh, managerial decisions that interest me, that's probably number one on the list because I want to see what happens there. And uh, Lourdes Curiel has been fine. You know, had some big hits of time up and down. Defense is fine. Just like fine or average is not always a negative thing in baseball. Like it's competent, but Evan Carter looks like a superstar. Uh, how do you not go Evan Carter here? The point I made about Moreno before applies even more so for Carter, right? You look at the Rangers, oh, they they won 90 games, same as the Astros, but that doesn't even like Evan Carter like doesn't really factor into those 90 wins. He basically was just like plopped onto the roster in September and he got was put on the roster because Adolis Garcia got right. dinged up. Which they I forgot about. about this. So Adam Morris of, of uh, the SB Nation Rangers blog wrote about this this morning and I totally forgot and Adolis Garcia bangs his knee on the wall trying to catch an Astros home run and only that is why Evan Carter came up. That's such a cool story. I had no recollection of that. So that, I mean, that changes the the shape of what you think of the Astros. The fact, basically, I mean, uh, the Rangers, the fact that they added this, this, this phenom to their lineup and he's performed like a phenom. It's, the, the question you raise is a really good one because like they've been hitting Seager and Grossman back to back a lot in the lineup. But if you do that, you make it really easy for Tori Lavello to bring in um, Joe Mantiply or Andrew Southrank. Although I'm not, I'm curious to see if Southrank makes the roster. I mean, he, he, he walked like seven of the 13 batters he faced wow. in the NLCS. <laughs> you, like, you know what I'm going to say here? That this is where you needed Madison Bumgarner against Curtis <laughs> Boshi, but we're not, we're not so lucky to have such narratives right now. So, I mean, that's, but he, he might make the roster just for that reason, just because like this part of the lineup is so ripe for a lefty to come in and force Bochy to make a tough decision. Like, am I going to really take Evan Carter out of this game for Robbie Grossman? I don't think he will, and that could end up being like a really tasty mismatch for for the D-backs to exploit. Before we get to right field, which has two superstars, we got to talk about center field, which is not exactly star-laden here. I think two somewhat similar players, right? Alec Thomas is a very good defensive outfielder. Didn't hit that much this year, 75 OPS plus. Uh, Leody Tavares, a very good defensive outfielder who hit a little better, 97 OPS plus. Uh, Tavares got on base a lot better in the postseason than Thomas did, right? He has an edge in on-base percentage of 64 points, which is not nothing. Now, Thomas has hit a couple big home runs. That's actually mattered. This is maybe one of the ones before we get to right field, I had the toughest time pulling apart because I don't love either player necessarily. I went with Tom uh, with um, Tavares. I like his glove a little bit better. I like his ability to get on base a little bit better, but I don't have a strong feeling about this either way. Yeah, I'm with you. I think recency bias will tilt people towards thinking Thomas is a little better than he is. And hey, maybe it's possible that he's like unlocked something and there's a a new confidence and that like he will be a better player going forward. But I'm not quite willing to go there just yet. So I think I'd take Tavares for that reason. As we move to right field, I would like to lodge a formal complaint with you, Matt, my editor, because I've been doing these position by position things for a long time. And pretty much every year I say, oh, I really don't want to pick this spot. Can I just do a tie? Can I do a push? And the answer is always no. You got to pick one. And that leads me to Corbin Carroll versus Adolis Garcia, which what do you do with that, right? Corbin Carroll, breakout young star of the whole postseason, right? A name everybody's going to need to know. He's going to win rookie of the year. I will point out, didn't do much in the first six games of the NLCS. I actually had some weird base running mistakes. And then in game seven, he was fantastic, right? Basically won the game all by himself, aside from the bullpen and, you know, the rest of his team. On the other side, Adolis Garcia had seven homers uh, in the postseason, including one in each of the last final four games of the ALCS, and he slugged 750. I mean, 
what do you do here? They're both very good hitters, right? Carroll is obviously better uh, on the bases. Here's the thing I found interesting, and I this is maybe a minor thing, but it could come up big in a big spot when they're both playing right field. Garcia has one of the strongest and most valuable right field arms in baseball. Absolute cannon. It's up there with Ronald Acuna. Carroll's is really, really weak, right? We have StatCast data on all this now. His arm strength is very near the bottom, and you saw it bite him a couple times. Do you remember the other night, Kyle Schorber went first to third on him? When does that happen? I didn't look up if Kyle Schorber had ever done that before, and now I regret not doing it because I want to know. And it's like, should arm strength be what makes me pick one guy or another? No, it's like the eighth most important thing. But when the gaps are this big and where one base or one run can mean so much, I went with Garcia just because I had to pick somebody, but I think that's why. I mean, at this point, I mean, I think that when all is said and done, Carroll will end up having a more, you know, decorated career. Um, but I think at this moment, when you consider how important home runs are in the postseason, I would have to give the edge to Garcia. Um, and even during the regular season, right? Garcia, like, he was, you know, he, he's had a reputation for being a free swinger in his career. But like this year, his walk rate went up. He was like, his expected weight on base was three sixty seven. Like that's. That's really, really good. Um, he's really an excellent player, which is higher than Carroll's. And, I mean, the D-backs won game seven, so that's fresh in our mind where they, they stole a bunch of bases. They actually, I, don't think they, I don't think they homered in the game. Um, and the Phillies hit one homer. It is rare in this day and age to win a postseason game where you have fewer home runs than your team. That was a rare instance, and Adolis Garcia is kind of proof of that. Like, the Rangers just, like, bludgeoned the Astros, and Garcia was, like, leading the way with his home run. So just the ability to have game-changing swings. Carroll, Carroll was, he was dinged up a bit this year. I forget, was it a shoulder thing? Shoulder, yep. He's not hit for any power in the postseason. Um, he obviously was the player of the game in Game 7, but in this moment, I feel like Garcia, I don't want to say it's the easy choice, because obviously Carroll's a, uh, a rising star in his own right, but I think that, you know, I definitely give the edge to Garcia. A quick note on Garcia before we move on. You're going to hear a lot probably about how he's yet another guy that the Cardinals just let go. Well, they did. They did just let him go. But after the Rangers acquired him a couple years ago, they also DFA'd him and nobody else picked him up, right? At that point, any of the other 29 teams, including the Cardinals, could have picked him back up. And I'm not proud of this, and you can back me up. I remember who they DFA'd him for, the immortal Mike Fultonevich. So... Credit to the Rangers for picking up Adolis Garcia, but let's not go overboard that they were like all in on superstar talent there because anybody else could have had him. And I will make one other point in the in the uh, in the Cardinals. I don't want to say fa- in their favor, but as much as I like to, to twist the knife on, on this topic because it's a fun one of like all like the good outfielders the Cardinals have like slipped to their grasp when they when they when they DFA'd Garcia, they signed Kwon Young Him from Korea, who was really good for them for one year uh, with a sub-3 sub ERA and 145 innings. And then the pandemic hit, and he went back to playing Korea. Um, so they actually did, when they made the move, it wasn't like completely, uh, it wasn't a completely fruitless endeavor for the for the Cardinals. For sure. Okay, uh, let's move on to pitching. And I got to say, this is not your prototypical... What about like, our designated hitters? Oh, uh, what about our designated hitters? You know, So here's the problem with designated hitters. I'm reading from the document I submitted for the article, and now it has become clear to me I need to go back and write about <laughs> designated hitters. Um, let's see. We're going to have Mitch Garver for Texas, and who we have? Tom, Tommy Pham? Tommy Pham. Yeah, Mitch Garver versus Tommy Pham. Uh, Garver, I think one of my favorite underrated trades over the last couple of years, Texas got Mitch Garver for Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. And I love Mitch Garver. He's been hurt a lot. He is one of the 
all time, not all time, but like the most recently elite fastball mashers. Like you do not throw fastballs, Patrick Mish Garver. And uh, it wasn't even really starting early in the postseason. And then he hit a grand slam and Bruce Bochy basically said, well, you hit a grand slam, then you're, you're back in the lineup the next day. So I respect that. Um, I like Fam a lot. I think he gives you a tough at bat. The production's just only been okay though, you know, whereas Garver has come up with some big hits. So if I'm picking here, I'm picking Garver. Uh my first memory of Mitch Garver was a game against the Mets when he was on the Twins, and it was like when DeGrom was at his peak, and he homered twice off DeGrom, and it was like, wait, who's who's this guy? Just speaking to your point about guy who guy who can turn on elite fastball, that ball velocity. I think this one's this one's kind of a push for me, but I mean, it's they're pretty even here. Um, to your point, Fam gives tough at bats, and you know they, uh, you know, Lavelle benched him that one game and started Paven Smith, which did not go well, and the next game. Uh, Tommy Pham homered his first at bat, and that just feels like Pham just feels like that kind of player who who will respond to that you know chip on his shoulder kind of moment. Um, but it's kind of a push for me, um, though. I certainly expect Mitch Carver to hit one home like massive home run in the series, and people will be like, "Wait, who is this guy again?" Hundred percent. Okay, starting pitching. This one's a little tricky because uh, both teams have like two guys they trust, and then a lot of question marks after that even though one of those question marks is literally Max Scherzer, right? So you look at the top two starters on each team, Zach Gallen, Merrill Kelly. I like both of them very much. I'm willing to ignore that Zach Gallen has not actually been that good in this postseason, right? I don't necessarily think that's predictive that he can't be good in the postseason, but you, you never know, right? It's been a long season. He threw a ton of innings this year. You never know if it's catching up with him at this point. He is good. He hasn't been good. That's fine. Uh, on the other side, Jordan Montgomery and Nathan Avaldi have been very good. And so... If the series goes a full seven games, you could potentially get four starts on each side out of those guys. And I'm not sure I've got a great edge if I'm just looking at the top two, I guess, Texas, because Montgomery has been great and Gallon hasn't, but I don't feel strongly about it. Here's the thing. Well, go ahead. Do you want to talk about the top two? I would, say, I would give, I would give, I would give Texas the edge for the, I just feel a little, a little more faith in both those guys. Mel Kelly was great in game six. He like was a really impressive job of just like how he kind of like mixed up. He he saved some of his repertoire for like the third time through. And like, you know, he struck out, I think, Bryce Harper a third time through with like a curveball that he hadn't shown him the first two times. And when we it was a very good example when you talk about, oh, third time through the lineup and how batters adjust to what they see from the pitcher on that night, how he was able to really, you know, he's got a he's he he can go deep in his bag uh for for a variety of pitches, but Evaldi Montgomery just have more confidence in as as like as a higher floor. Yeah, I agree with that. So the question for me then is uh, is one of depth, right? So the third starter, you could not have more different resumes. You have Max Scherzer, like living legend, is going to be a Hall of Famer. Max Scherzer, they acquired him for this moment against Brandon Fott, a rookie who had an ERA of five seventy two. So you'd hear that and you'd be like, what are we even talking about here? However, Brandon Fott allowed two earned runs in three starts against the Phillies and Dodgers. Like, he absolutely shoved. I don't care that he didn't go deep. Like, Torrey Lovello made the right call to lift him when he did. It's fine. And Max Scherzer has just not looked that great. And then I read this morning, uh, he's got, like, a thumb injury now. Like, it's like a new ache and pain every day, which, as I can tell you, once you turn 40 is the sort of thing that starts to happen. And so it's like, I'm not sure I actually take Scherzer over fat right now, which I never thought I'd say. And then you go to a potential fourth starter, and you can say the Rangers have choices. John Gray, Andrew Heaney, Dane Dunning, some kind of combination. The Diamondbacks literally do not have a fourth starter. That's how Joe Mantiply opened one of the games of the NLCS, which I guess they'll have to do again. I went with Texas 
even though I don't have a lot of confidence in Scherzer just because of the depth there. Because like even if Scherzer gets bounced in the second inning, you can throw John Gray for four innings, right? And I don't, I don't have the same confidence in Arizona. I was impressed with the way Bruce Bochy went and got Max Scherzer in Game 7. Like, it's like, oh, Game 7, Max Scherzer, like, this veteran can get it out. And he was like, nope, like, third inning, like, like I don't I don't really trust this guy. Took him out, which, you know, you, you'd, you know you'd almost expect Max Scherzer to throw a fit. Maybe it's because he respects Bochy. Maybe it's because he knows he's compromised that he didn't. But the fact that he was willing to go get him so quickly, I thought, spoke well of, like, where he sees Scherzer at this point in time. And the fact, I mean, that, that you mentioned those guys, Gray, Dunning, Heaney, he has options of like guys who can give him multiple innings out of the pen to kind of help fill that gap if Scherzer's only like a two, two to three inning pitcher at this point in his career. So I think that, that I have a lot of faith in Bochy's ability to, to make that to make that right call and not be like, oh, Max Scherzer, I, I have to respect the aura of Max Scherzer. I agree with that. All right, let's move to the bullpen. And it's for this position, I'm so happy I'm not actually a fan of either team because these might be the two weakest units of any part on either club, which is great if you want late inning insanity. And I do. I want chaos. I want lead changes. I don't trust either of these bullpens that much, but I have some numbers to share with you, right? I don't I don't care about regular season numbers right now because we know that it's all changed. If you look at their postseason ERAs, you'd say Arizona 294. That's pretty good. Texas 372. It's fine, right? The underlying numbers are ridiculous. Uh, if you look at StatCast expected ERA based on quality of contact and walks in contact, Arizona had a 401, which is fine. Texas had a 721. <laughs> Texas's bullpen struck out fewer than seven per nine. They walked nearly five per nine. I don't trust anybody beyond Jose Leclerc and maybe Josh Zbors. Like, do you trust Aroldis Chapman? I don't. I know he's got a 142 ERA. His expected ERA is 735. Will Smith is in like witness protection. They don't seem to trust him at all. And it's funny because if you were to go into the postseason and say, like, do you trust the Arizona bullpen at all? I'd say, of course I don't. But they traded for Paul Sewell, who's been pretty good. Kevin Ginkle was apparently peak Trevor Hoffman all of a sudden. Like, this is a guy who I barely even knew was a pitcher for the last four years. He got sent down to AAA as recently as this June, and he came back. And long story short, he's got a killer slider that he throws from a high release point, and he's targeting it south of the zone instead of in the zone. And anyway, he's been unbelievable. So you look at Sewell and Ginkle, and I like Ryan Thompson, who's been a good story. And they got a couple lefties you can match up with, like Matt Supply and, and Saul Frank if he makes the roster. And I don't like the Arizona bullpen, but I'm taking it over Texas. I don't trust the Texas bullpen at all. Ginkle, in a in a in a year where we hear hear a lot about the sweeper, and it's this you know it's all the rage as far as pitchers changing changing looks and mixing up their slider. Seeing a guy with just a classic hard vertical slider, just like looking nasty, it's a it's kind of a it's kind of a brush of right there. It reminds me of the the lights out setup men of my youth, um, just coming in with that like north south hard slider. He's looked fantastic, Thompson, and this is like another one of those examples of. Even the quote unquote smart team sometimes don't know what they have, or like there's only so much you can do with baseball players or randomness. Like the Rays DFA'd him in August. And then maybe just because the Rays have too many 40 men, too many good players for the 40 men, they had to make room for someone. But like Ryan Thompson, who's been fantastic and was also very good for the Rays, I think in the 2020 postseason, um, has come in, you know, nowadays because the late trade deadline, you usually don't get players from other organizations that can help you after July 31st. So it's rare to be able to add a player 
in August that ends up helping you in October, and that's what they've done with Ryan Thompson. Yeah, great story. I read about him, uh, I think, in The Athletic the other day. He's in seminary school, and when he got cut loose by the Rays, he's like, well, I've got plenty of time to kill this October. I'm going to add more classes to my fall semester. Who would have thought that he'd still be pitching into November? I guess that's what they call a good problem to have. We'll take a quick break, and we'll come back and finish it off by making some predictions. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike and Matt, we are going to finish off by looking ahead and predicting the World Series. Matt, I would like to give you at least a little bit of credit. I'm pretty sure that if I go back and listen to one of our previous shows when we were predicting the National League Championship Series, you said the Diamondbacks were going to beat the Phillies. So I want to give you a minute to take a victory lap. Golf clap. Uh, I, already did, you. I already did a victory lap at the beginning of the show, but I'm happy I to know. take another one. I wanted to make sure it was like extremely called out that you did that. I feel, well, let's, let's start with this. Do you agree that most people will view Texas as a slight favorite? They have home field advantage. They won more games. And, I, you know, they were in first place for much of the season, right? Do you think that sounds right? I think that's right. Yeah, I, I, but they're not a big... There's no big edges here, right? Uh, the biggest possible edge, I don't want to say of the best team or worst team in baseball. It's not like, you know, Braves and A's, but like of teams good enough to make the playoffs, the biggest possible edge I could give in a seven-game series is like 60-40 at an extreme, I think. And these teams are pretty close. I mean, 51-49. Like it's, I don't want to say it's a coin flip because that implies that people involved have like no agency here. And obviously they're going to make some plays and everything. Um, there's, there's just not an outcome here that I think I would be surprised at. I mean, if Arizona goes in and sweeps, like, yes, fine. That would be surprising. But in terms of who wins, I Diamondbacks in seven. I'm not sure how I could how I could say less than six or seven here. Who is your World Series MVP in that scenario? I don't know. I never pay attention to World Series MVPs. Uh let's see. Corbin Carroll is too obvious. Um, I I don't I'm not enough of a romantic to say that Evan Longoria will do it and then go nuts. So give me um Oh, Christian Walker. It's going to be Christian Walker. That's what it is. He's going to show up. He's going to go off Christian Walker. I think that's – I'm with you on the fact that if the D-backs win, uh, Christian Walker is going to have a big series. I'm kind of at a loss on this one because I think, you know, we just talked through the – as we were talking through the Rangers bullpen, it made me kind of want to second guess my, <laughs> my, my pick a little bit. But I do think that, like, the Rangers – because of the weird shape of their season and the, like how they sputtered down the stretch, it's getting a little undersold just how good their offense was this year. They were third overall in, on the season and weighed, weighted on base. And even in the second half when they faded, they were seventh in MLB. And again, that barely factors in Evan Carter joining the team. It's just a really good lineup, and I think that it's that's a significant edge. So I think the Rangers will prevail in seven games. Rangers in seven. And Diamondbacks is seven. Okay. And the MVP will be Corey Seager because he's the best player, and that's a straightforward pick for me. Picking the chalk over here. If it's not Seager, who else would you go with? Mitch Garver, or does it have to be someone who's already like known? Um, I, I mean, obviously there there have been plenty of cases. Not plenty. There have been enough cases of players winning LCS MVP and World Series MVP that it wouldn't be shocking if Adolis Garcia. But it, it sort of feels like. Garcia is probably due for a little bit of a mini slump here. Um, so I, it's hard to imagine he'll keep this up. Um, so if not Seager, I'm going to say, I mean, 
I'll take the same logic as Christian Walker, Marcus Simeon. It's exactly what I thought you were going to say. Yes, exactly right. So great player who has not performed yet will perform better. And that team will end up winning the World Series. Uh, it should be fun. I, I'm excited about it. I know this is a kind of a unusual under the radar matchup. But honestly, I think people are sick of watching the Astros. We saw the Phillies last year. Like, will the, have been fun again? Sure. I'm excited for new teams. I think this one's going to be a lot of fun. And um, even if it doesn't have the hype you'd expect, I think the actual baseball is going to be really good. And I think that's what's pretty exciting to me. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.